will be reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 12. Now hear God's word to us this morning. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And, the ears, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is God's word. Please join me for prayer. God, we need you to open our eyes and our ears and our minds to understand these things of yours that are spiritual. These things of yours that you have revealed through the prophets and kept by your spirit that behold and... Uh, Proclaim the goodness of Christ Jesus and all the benefits of it that us, your people, need to hear, need to understand so that we may grasp the world around us, that we may not run in vain, but that we may live lives that glorify you, have a true rock and foundation to stand upon when the storms come. This is only possible by you. Be with the preaching of your word and the hearing of it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Verse 8 starts with that one word, finally. Finally. That means that he is, uh, he's concluding a section of Scripture uh, in this book, a train of thought. When you and I have conversations, we'll, we go from subject to subject. It, it, we, we have clear thoughts, and we make arguments during those thoughts, and we give illustrations. So Peter is giving he's a concluding thought in a big picture. So we need to do a quick recap. And, and I would say, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 2. And, and I'm just going to jump on a little soapbox here. I, I want to encourage us to start to bring our Bibles. Uh, I want to encourage you to ha- own a Bible. And I get it. We have it on our devices. Uh, this is not, I'm not saying that this is a hard rule. I'm just going to give a couple examples why I think that this is important. One, I was at this church as a guest preacher up in L.A., and there's about 300, 400 people there. And I was, uh, they always had an elder read the scripture passage, and the pastor sat in the back while he read. And so I was sitting back there, and I was kind of looking at my Bible, and uh, I was at, he was going to read my section from Ephesians. And I'm looking up, and he's up there, and uh, he's he's getting ready, and uh, nothing's happening. So I just kind of look up at him, and he's looking around, and I'm sitting back there. And after, like, 30 seconds, I realized this guy doesn't know where Ephesians is. He's the elder in the church. He could not find Ephesians. And so I kind of, he, he's looking at me like, help. And I got up and I read the passage for him. Just recently, not too long ago, I was at another church. And they, too, had somebody else read the passage for the preaching. And I'd given them the passage beforehand. And then when we showed up, they had everybody kind of huddle around and pray for it. Um, and during that time, I, I spoke to the, the person who was going to be reading. I said, listen, can you add the uh, two verses before it for context? And the person says, I, 
I, I, I can't. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, it's just, just read, if you don't mind just reading two verses before she, uh, they go, well, it, it was already printed out for me. And I, I looked to the guy who's the, the pa- pastor there and I said, well, um, well, you can just grab your Bible and just read from that. She goes, I don't have a Bible. And then everybody in the group, nobody had a Bible. So the pastor had to run like up to their office to go find a Bible. So it, it, and they had the word. They could get to it. Everybody had their phone. They had it written in the bulletin. So this, it wasn't, I don't want to say it, there's something evil about this. But think about our generation. How many of you, you grew up with a Bible, right? Our generation of kids are not growing up with Bibles. They're growing up with phones. So in, in the future, they're not going to know where to go. There's just benefits of it. Now, God in his grace and his humor uh, had me forget my kids' Bibles today. So my kids are sitting here saying, I'm speaking to myself. <laughs> so it's all of us, you, you know. Uh, I just, anyways, if you have a Bible, or otherwise uh, you can just listen. Um, so he begins this conversation. In chapter 1, Peter is basically saying, you have been born again by the mercy of God through Jesus Christ who died for your sins. Peter is preaching to a people, and he, he, this is great news for you what has happened. You, are, you are, have been blessed by God. You are now believers. And in chapter 2, verse 4, he begins this section, and he, and he starts like this. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God precious, talking about Jesus. He says, you yourselves are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. He begins by telling these people, listen, you're being mistreated and abused by those around you. Well, you're in good company. Jesus himself was mistreated, and yet he is the cornerstone. You saints, you church, are being built up into this spiritual house. You you are more than meets the eye. Then he goes on to say, you come to this faith in this beautiful position by the preaching of the word and the hearing and believing of it. It's by faith that you have this position. Then he goes on in verse 9 of chapter 2. He says, now don't you see? You who have believed, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And he says, as a new priesthood, you have a job. And this is your job. He goes, it's to declare the excellencies of God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In another word, you are evangelists and heralds to a lost and dark world. You are evangelists and heralds to the world. Then if you remember, we've covered this in previous sermons, there's a problem. The problem is right here in verse 11. It says, you are sojourners and exiles. You need to abstain from the passion of your flesh. Even though you have been redeemed by Christ Jesus, we all still struggle with that sin. I still struggle with that sin. It's still there, and it, it, it's going to thwart the whole plan. It's going to get in the way of what God is doing. It's going to nag you in the side. It doesn't separate you from God because you, you were never brought to God by your obedience. It's always by your grace. But in your following after God, at times it's going to be feeling like you're carrying a ball and chain like an old prisoner. And that's going to be a struggle. And he says, it's going to be a struggle because what God has for you, the service that you and I are to offer God, is the conduct of our lives that glorifies God and brings people to faith. 
He says this. He goes on in verse 12. Keep your conduct, the way you live, church. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. In other words, he's going to say, you're going to preach the word and people are going to shut their ears and they're not going to hear. But for some of you, through your faithful living, your submissive living, they're going to say, wait, wait, maybe there is something to what he or she was saying. And they're going to come to God through that. And he's also saying, by your conduct, God does something else. He shuts the mouths of those who hate God. That he, he, he causes them to see our conduct that is opposite of the world. And he, he causes us, the world to see our hope in God, even though they, they abuse us and put us down. And it seems like we should not have hope. It shuts their mouths that there is a real God. So Peter is saying, you are a new creation, a church, and your behavior matters. It has important to what it does. Um, Peter says to the church, you need to submit and entrust yourself to God. He's talking about conduct. And then he goes through these different categories to the government, even though the government isn't always good. Even though the government is not always just. Then he says, slaves to masters. He says, even the unjust masters who may, maybe beat you and persecute and then he says to the wives even those wives that have hard and disrespecting and even maybe even harsh husbands submit yourself to them always entrusting God knowing there is somebody else that has you and so Peter makes the argument that as a Christian church we need to be willing to suffer unjustly that we don't want to seek out our own vengeance. They'll always right the, the wrongs that are done against us, but we need to be seeking to glorify God to bring people to Jesus. He's saying that this is your mission. This is what your life should be about, not making everything right, not justifying yourself, but glorifying God. Others focus. I was, I don't know if any of you have gone through this, but in my 40s, I've just been having maybe a midlife crisis always asking what's going on what's the purpose what what am i doing and the other night i was lying in bed and just thinking you know what lasts what truly lasts building a business uh, having money in the bank buying a house sports accommodations or, or, or credits what lasts and it was saving souls lasts Bringing people to God lasts. I'm not saying move, move. Now hear me out. I'm not saying move to India. It, it, sacrifice everything. Give up everything. The scripture is very clear. Eat your bread. Drink your wine. Live a peaceful, quiet life in faithfulness. But it's saying that we're all working towards something. We have different contexts that we are working and pursuing. It says this is something worth pursuing whether in your prayer life or using your finances and resources, your interests, saving souls. Scripture is clear, Proverbs. He who wins souls is wise. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. Pray to God that he'd bring more harvesters. So for this sermon, it, it, what it does is the, the previous text and a bunch of other texts show us that the purpose of you and I and the church is to glorify God and to bring people into the kingdom. That's it. I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying don't go on vacation. 
don't enjoy your job. Don't enjoy good food. But it's saying at our heart of what we are about is to glorify God and to bring other people into the kingdom. This text tells us how we do that. This text confirms to us how to do it, and it also proclaims to us this sweet news that everything you and I want in this world, everything that we have been working towards, we actually have something way better already, and it's ours through Christ Jesus. So we're just going to kind of work our way through this text. Look at verse 9. Peter, summarizing this, set, this section, says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind. It's really important that we ask, what does he mean by unity of mind? And he's, he's talking in this section, it, it's plural. He's talking to the church. We have to see ourselves as united and together. And he's saying you need to have a unity of mind. I was at, the, uh, at this church, and there was a, a gentleman who had a great heart, loved Jesus, and he'd always pray at the beginning of these meetings, Lord, give us unity. But at times, I realized during these meetings, what he really meant was unity that we just all get along. Like that is the most important thing. That we just kind of, we're all still friends. That's not the unity that is talked about here in this passage. And my friend was drawing from a passage in Ephesians chapter 4 where he says, uh, Paul is praying that the church would have unity of spirit. But what he's talking about in that section, that unity is unity of spirit, unity in their theological beliefs. He follows it up with that there's one God, that there's one Lord, there's one Savior, there's one Word, there's one Spirit. As Christians, we stand on what we believe. It, belief matters. And some of these things are worth having difficult discussions with those who disagree with us gently and humbly winsomely so unity isn't just get along and so this passage isn't even talking about what ephesians was talking about that we would have unity of our theology it includes that but it means unity about what i just taught you and what did he just teach us that the way of glorifying god is through suffering unjustly and submitting ourselves to those who are around us. That was his whole argument. He, he was saying, listen, you are a new creation by your conduct, mainly by your suffering. You're going to glorify God and you're going to bring people to Jesus. Let's be unified by that. Let, let's understand that. Let's all have that common understanding. Uh, the last time in this text that he mentions the word mindful, if you, if you have it, you can look at verse 19. It says, for this is a gracious thing, this gracious thing, this is a praiseworthy thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He's saying, this is a praiseworthy thing. When you know God, you understand the way God works, and therefore you're willing to suffer unjustly, knowing that that brings glory to God. A person will only be able to suffer and to endure it. And to do it with joy, like Paul and, and, and his partner who sang hymns while they were in prison, if they understand that this is not outside the way of God. I had a, a, a gentleman tell me early in my ministry, he said, God 
often before he uses a person, crushes him first. Often the way God works is before he uses a person for great things, he crushes him. And this might sound strange to you, but there's huge biblical evidence to what this gentleman said. Think about this. Abraham, 25 years of being childless. More years of being a vagabond and a wanderer. He didn't have ground. He didn't own the, ter- the, the ground underneath him. He was always wandering, always chasing after what God had said, never fully realizing it. And yet he's the father of all nations. Moses, he, he was abandoned as, as a child. His parents grew up, raised in a home that wasn't his. For 40 years was out in the wilderness as if God had forgotten about him. You think God's forgotten about you? The last two years might be hard, and, and, and I'm sorry, and some of you it has been. Moses had 40 years in the wilderness. And then when God used them, they hated him, and they, uh, they, they charged him with wrongdoing. It goes on, Joseph sold into slavery, living in a dungeon for two years. David gets, as a young man, promised you're going to be the king, but what happened to him? He was on the run for 12 years before he even was anointed. It goes on, uh, Peter, right here, Peter had to go through the awful torment and the crushing of his own moral failure, his own failure of Jesus, denying Christ three times. Paul, we all know that Paul had to go through carrying the baggage of an evil, awful life. I I wasn't converted until I was 22 like some of you guys later in life. And so I carry around this shame that is washed by Christ, covered in Christ, but it's still there of what I have done. And it's not just men. Look at Sarah. Sarah was without child. In their generation, Abraham's wife, that was looked on as terrible. That God had shown his favor from you. Think about Ruth losing her husband. Being a vagabond in a a different country. Hannah, who was Samuel's wife, praying for a child and being without child and being laughed at. Think about Mary, who at a young uh, age was uh, brought with child by the Holy Spirit. Who, Who do you think believed her? She didn't get a baby shower. She got called names. She is the mother of our Lord, the prostitute who washed Jesus' feet. It is not as if something strange was happening when you face trials of various kinds and life is hard. Instead, this is the normal Christian life. Jesus, in his suffering, which is said here, he says, Christ also suffered. He said, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Jesus is not the exception. Jesus' suffering is the pattern. It's a pattern. He even says, for to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Now, Christ's suffering is very different than our suffering. Christ's suffering saved people. Your suffering has the chance to point people to Christ who saves people. Our suffering can't save anybody. Our suffering can only point them to hope. We suffer, and we probably deserve a lot of our suffering. Christ didn't deserve any of it. Yet Christ didn't just die for us that we might be reconciled. Christ was persecuted and suffered as an example for us. The biblical writers 
teach this. Uh, if, in the slaves, verse 21 that I just showed you, but also uh, Paul in Philippians says this. He's writing again to a church. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you. Have this understanding. Have this worldview amongst you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being in the likeness of men, he became obedient even to the point of death. The point is suffering is not abnormal. There is a way in which we are called to it. Even uh, Peter talking to the slave says, to this you have been called. This is a tough pill to swallow. I'm talking to every single one of you who are in Christ Jesus who are going to come up here and partake of his, his, the blessings of him through the blood and the bread of Christ. He is your example. The fiery trials in your lives are, are not something strange. And he wants us to see this. That the church needs to grasp this and have this mind. He calls us to be unified. And he starts with this because it's foundational. Because if we don't have this mind, it creates all chaos. Have you ever been on a car trip? And you're all excited about this trip. And you're all excited about what everybody's going to do. But there's one person in the family that just isn't having it. And they voice their opinion all along the way. What does it do to the whole car? What does it do to the whole trip? It messes it up. Saints, our American church and many other churches, but I can't speak for them. I only know a number of churches throughout the U.S., is not unified in this. We don't have this mind. We don't accept that suffering is the way of God, that suffering is something that we've been called to, that suffering is the means by which God glorifies himself and brings other people to it. And I'm not saying just suffering. I'm saying us enduring suffering. Us enduring suffering. Everybody in the world suffers, but he's calling us as Christians to endure it with a Christ-like example. There's a problem in our church. We don't have this mind. In this scripture, he talks about various trials coming to us. In chapter 4, he talks about fiery trials. In chapter 4, he talks about just plain suffering. Chapter 4, he says that people are going to malign you. That means they speak spitefully against you. They criticize you. They speak down at you. They revile you. They abuse you. They insult you. And he says, but don't repay evil for evil. He says, Jesus elsewhere says, turn the other cheek, right? If somebody asks you to go to a mile, go with them another mile. Why do we throw these verses away and we're surprised when we, we go through trials? Where is God, we cry out. And we fight against it. And we say as a church, and I'm talking not every church and not every one of you, some of you suffer well. But I know this even happens in my own heart. I said, I won't be pushed around. I know the truth. They are wrong. I won't be silenced. We as a church will not submit. God does not want us. It can go even further. God does not want us poor. 
God does not want us suffering. God does not want us last. God wants us influential. God wants us to have money. God wants us to have control. God wants us to, to take a stand. And so we send a mixed message to the world. Remember, we were saved by Christ Jesus out of mercy, but we've been given a task to glorify God and bring people to him by our conduct. That's been Peter's whole argument. The last four sermons, three sermons have been about. And I was sitting at a Bible study this week, and, and one of the guys, he says, well, I just don't feel like the world is being won over by our righteous conduct. And I was thinking, maybe our conduct isn't as righteous as we think. Yeah, we, we, the world knows we stand against abortion. The world knows that we have these uh, biblical understanding of men and women. The world knows that we have these views about sexual immorality. But you know how we present those views? As conquerors, as crusaders, as warriors, as fighters, as standing our ground. That's the message that they get. We, we often look back at the church very embarrassingly at the crusades that took place in the Middle Ages. I think a lot of ways those crusades are still happening just without spears and swords. We're still going in and I'm going to take my land, I'm going to take control, and I don't care how many people I run over at it. Where Jesus preached the truth, spoke the truth, and Paul, following his example, preached the truth and was stoned outside the city, and got up and straggled back into the city and preached it again. Peter and James were uh, unjustly thrown in prison. And they didn't rebuke, they converted the guards. The Romans were against them, and yet they said, show honor to those who are in charge. Peter says, glorify God. Bring salvation to other people. Have this mind amongst yourselves. Do you have this mind? Do we as a church have this mind amongst ourselves that we are going to make ourselves low, that we are going to endure knowing that nothing happens outside the will of God? Yes, we will use the tools that are given to us, and in our country we can vote. We can say something, but our hope is not in that. Sometimes we're just going to go the extra mile. We're going to turn the other cheek. Do you want to glorify God? Here's the question for us. Do we want to glorify God? Do we want to see other people come into the kingdom? It's ours. Christ Jesus is our head. He is our Lord. He has accomplished all the work that God has sent him to do. His plan is perfect. This is not a call for us to uh, just start to obey and live out in a certain way. I, I, this is a call to understand what Christ has done and partner with him. Get on track with him. I was at a Bible study earlier this week that I, I didn't do. And one thing, sitting through this Bible study, I was confronted by the beauty of reformed teaching, reformed te uh, churches, which if you're not familiar, that's just a, a name that we get from about 500 years. And it's a way to view the scriptures 
that the church historically has viewed the scriptures, and it doesn't see the Old Testament separated from the New Testament, but it sees the Old Testament being the foundation of the New Testament. The Old Testament pointing to Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus in the New Testament being shown in the Old Testament that it's unified, and it's all about God being glorified, and it's all about Christ Jesus, our Savior, reconciling us to the world. So everything we do, whether it's a charge to give money, it's filtered through the lens of what Christ Jesus has done. If it's a charge to submit and obey authorities, it's through the lens that Christ is our great authority and there's no authority except what God has instituted. If it's a charge to seek the things that are unseen and not the things that are seen, because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal, we do this because we know Christ has purchased us an eternal inheritance. So when you are and I are called to suffer by the civil authorities, by the people around us, by the haters, it's through the lens of Christ Jesus who is reconciling the world to himself. And it has an end. It has a beautiful end. And I'm just going to jump down there to it. it. He goes on to say, you need to have this mind amongst yourself, that this is the way of God suffering. And then he goes on to the church and he says, sympathy, brotherly love, tender-hearted, humble-minded. This is how we relate to each other, binding together. And as a church, God has called you to unite to one another, to be loving towards one another, open yourself up to one another. And then verse 9, he says, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. He says, don't do this. Why does he have to tell us in verse 9, don't do this? Don't fight back. Because again, we have these passions of the flesh. The sin still remains, and it, we want to revile. And listen to what he says. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. You have something way better. You have something way better. But on the contrary, instead of reviling, bless. Don't worry about getting yours from the, the worldly people, the worldly organizations, because you already got yours, and it's way better. You, you and I have heard so many stories and seen it in real life where you, you might have this young athlete. He gets to the NBA or he gets to the NFL, and he gets contracts, and he gets fame, and he gets money, and he gets to do what he actually loves and what he's good at, and he's got it all, and, it, and it's his, and you see him throw it all away for something stupid, getting in an argument with some guy, pulling out a gun, getting caught up with some other kind of money thing. He, somebody talking negative about him, and he fights back. And you think, why would you throw it away? You had it. You already had it. Don't get sidetracked by this, this stuff. It doesn't mean anything. That is what Peter's saying here, saints. He's saying, church, in Christ, Christ Jesus, you have it all. Don't get sidetracked by suffering. Don't get sidetracked by earth, earthly injustice. It's very easy to look at this passage and say, he's laying before us a way of the good life. He's putting before us how we can be blessed. Look at verse 9, it says, But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Whoever desires the good life, we all desire the good life, right? Whoever desires to see good days, we all want that. 
Well, it says, let him keep his tongue from evil and let his, uh, his lips from speaking deceit. It looks like he's saying, if you want it good, then you better do this. That's not what Peter is pointing out here. The, the, Peter is, is not using this passage from Psalm 34 that, that David proclaimed. He's saying, you, have, you already are the righteous. You, this, this is not a way to joy. This is a promise of the joy. You are the righteous, not because of what you've done, but because of your faith in Christ Jesus. And what is yours as the righteous? He points this. He says, verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the Lord hears your prayers. This is why you don't have to revile. This is why you don't have to fight the world for justice. You don't have to fight to get ahead because in Christ Jesus, this is what you were called to. This, in this calling, we, has anybody ever called themselves? We don't call ourselves. God has called us. Peter is saying, you were called to this. A salvation that you may obtain salvation. It's an awkward way of saying, you were called to this salvation that is yours in Christ Jesus. So why would you get so bothered with the temporary stuff of this world? Doesn't that make sense? Doesn't that relieve you from having the fight to make sure everybody around you knows that you're right? I love what Paul says. There, there's a view out there, and it's a theological view, and, I, and I, the, our theology matters. Even if it's not, you can hold this view and you can be a Christian and saved and go into heaven. But our theology matters. It can lead to, to difficulties. There's a theology that the whole world is going to get better. We as Christian, our witnesses, is going to spread throughout the world. And I know the world hates us now, but we're going to start winning them over. And more people are going to become Christian. And we're going to kind of bring in the kingdom here on earth. There's not going to be so much divisiveness and, and, and nations aren't going to be battling. People are going to be one to Christ here and then Christ is going to return. That theological view then says we got to make ground. We got to make progress. We want to see progress and if we're not seeing progress, something must be wrong. Christians aren't getting up and, and preaching enough and doing enough and we got to, got to do more. But if you understand what Scripture teaches that it's a fallen, broken world. It easily should have been, it should have been, the world should have been put out in the alleyway and taken by the trash. The whole thing just done away with. God should have said, I, I'm, I'm done with this. The whole batch is bad. But God in his mercy said, I'm going to show grace. I'm going to glorify myself by sending my son into this dark and twisted world. And I'm going to redeem a people for myself. And I'm going to keep this world, even though in its brokenness, running, going to and fro. There's going to be springtime, summer, winter. And the Christians that are in it and I've saved, they're going to suffer. It's going to be difficult. But someday I'm going to return and make all things new. Evil will be done away with. The righteous will be brought up. Return to me. I'm going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And that way, under that understanding that this world is fallen and broken... We're not surprised by it. We're not baffled by it. We're not hampered by it. We just brush it off. Taylor Swift, brush it off. And that is what Scripture teaches. Look in in Philippians chapter 2. 
It says, Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. Do all things, Paul, talking to the, a church, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. He's saying, saints, church, we are in a twisted and crooked generation. And we're always going to be in a twisted and crooked generation. But this ain't our home. We're sojourning through here. We're temporarily here. We are priests of God. We have the call and the charge to glorify God and to bring people through Christ through our submission and our suffering through our looking to a future and a hope and an eternity that cannot be taken away from us. As Peter said in chapter 1, it's imperishable. It's unchangeable. It's undefiled. And it's yours in Christ Jesus. Be of that mind and see what the God can do through you when you quit fighting for your own right, your own privileges, and you're like Paul. Arrest me, and I'll convert the guards. Kill me, and I'll go be with Jesus. Let me free, and I'll go preach to the world. Or you can be like Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, knowing the prize that was on the other side. And Scripture says, let him be an example to us. Endure the suffering for the sake of others, for the glory of God, knowing the joy that awaits us. Let us pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these glasses that you put on us that help us see the reality. Nobody likes to suffer. suffer. Nobody should long for suffering. Christ has borne all of our burdens. And he even prayed, Lord, don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. It is your will and your way that we remain here and we testify to the world, but we can't do it without your strength. And we wouldn't even know that this would be your way unless you had shown us through your word. We thank you for this section of scripture that Peter has labored over, that the church would see, that every person in the church in every circumstance may submit themselves to you, suffering at times, but always looking to Christ our Savior, always entrusting ourselves to you who are faithful and you will never let us down. Like Paul says, we know that you'll deliver us from every evil and every danger, and bring us into the glory of your kingdom. Give us your spirit, Lord, to believe in this and live by this. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.